0: Happy Saturday, everybody. We're once again pulling from a previous October episode. This one comes from previous hosts, Sarah and Dublina. It dates back to 2012. It's on Alfred Packer, also known as the Colorado Cannibal, who the end of the episode takes a lighter tone than you might imagine because Alfred Packer has become something of a folk hero in spite of the immense taboos surrounding cannibalism. So as long as you are not too squeamish, enjoy. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
1: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And if you're a regular listener of this podcast, you probably know that we've covered our fair share of historical murders, serial killers, and similar topics, especially during this time of year, Halloween season. October series tradition. Yes, but it's rare that we talk about killers who have taken their crimes a step further to include an act that some consider to be even more disturbing, and that's cannibalism. We've actually never really explored this topic, though Candace and Josh did back in 2008 when they talked about the infamous Donner Party, a wagon train that got trapped by the harsh, snowy winter weather in the Sierra Nevada mountains in 1846. Now, with that story, out of the 87 people who set out on that trip, only 47 lived to tell about it, and some of those people did resort to cannibalism in order to survive.
2: So our story
1: today is somewhat similar, and in fact, it's often confused
2: with the Donner Party story. It involves a man named Alfred Packer who was among a group of prospectors who went into the San Juan Mountains in the Colorado Rockies near the end of 1873 and also ran into some pretty treacherous wind winter weather on his trip. Unlike the Donner party situation, though, when the thaw came the following spring, Packer was the only guy from his party to emerge from the mountains alive a little more suspicious, and it certainly adds to the mystery of the story.
1: It does, and what kind of set up this mystery was a series of suspicions, accusations, and confessions that didn't really match up that followed Packer emerging from the mountains. According to Michael Mayo in his book American Murder, uh, all of this led to Packer becoming the American West's only convicted cannibal. Quite a
2: distinction.
1: Exactly, but it also created one of the great mysteries of the American West, because to this day, people still debate about whether Packer was guilty as charged. So we're going to look into that a little bit. And in order to do that, of course, we have to start where the story begins. So it all started in November of 1873, when a group
2: of about 20 or so would-be prospectors set out from Bingham Canyon, Utah, and headed toward Breckenridge, Colorado in the Rocky Mountains in search of, what else, gold. And serving as a guide on this expedition was Alfred Packer. And just a little note, before you start writing your email saying you were pronouncing it incorrectly, there is some debate about Alfred Packer's name, even though he's generally known as as alfred like with erd yeah erd official documents list his name as the more traditional alfred and it's supposed that he might have started going by alfred when a careless tattoo artist misspelled the name on his arm even though that's just kind of a rumor i do like that idea though you know your tattoos spelled wrong you're just going to go with it alfred it is
1: According to information from the Alfred Packer Collection at the Colorado State Archives, Packer was born in Pennsylvania on November 21, 1842, and during the Civil War, he enlisted in both the 16th U.S. Infantry of Minnesota and the 8th Regiment, Iowa Cavalry, but he was discharged from both of these due to epilepsy. The rest of the details of his life are a little bit sketchy. The next real evidence that we have of his whereabouts is from when he joined up with those miners in Utah. He wanted to be a part of their prospecting party, but he didn't have a lot of money for provisions to make the trip. So according to an article by Diana Stefano in the Journal of Social History, he offered up $25 bucks and his services as a guide to join them in their journey. And he told them that he knew Colorado's high country well, so his offer was accepted. They didn't know their way around, and he did, so it seemed like a good match. He, he claimed he did, because according to De DeStefano's article,
2: it didn't take long for Packer to really rub his traveling companions the wrong way. And there were a few reasons for that. First of all, there was a rumor going around that Packer had served some hard time back in Salt Lake City because he was suspected of murdering his trapping partner. So, Not the kind of guy you might want with you out in the wilderness. Second, he was also inappropriately interested in the amount of cash that the other men were carrying with them. He would apparently ask them outright, how much money do you have on you? And then thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, especially considering that the group was – Making this trek with limited provisions and really relying on Packer's expertise, he seemed to have exaggerated his skill as a guide. According to the article we just mentioned, he got them lost more than once, not something that would endear him to his traveling
1: companions. So they're getting lost, they're running out of food, and the weather just keeps getting worse and worse. By the time they make it to the winter camp of Chief Ure along the Uncompahgre River in Colorado in mid-December— They were starving, pretty much. The chief made it really clear to them that he thought it was a really bad idea for them to continue on with their journey at that point. He advised them to just stay where they were and wait until spring. And about 10 guys out of the party followed this advice. A small group of men led by Oliver D. Lutzenheiser was itching to get started, though, so they set out with directions from the chief toward the Las Pinas Indian Agency on the other side of the mountain. According to Stefano's article, Packer wanted to be a part of this group, but... Lutzenheiser didn't trust him and threatened to shoot him if he tried to follow him. So he really did not like Packer at all. No, that maybe that first point on the,
2: the jail time and all the lies that he'd been seeing along the trip. Not exactly <laughs> the
1: kind of guy you want with you on an already rough <laughs> on journey, your I guess. trip. But another eager group of men also set out in the same direction, and Packer, again, served as their guide. The other men in this group were Shannon Bell, James Humphrey, George Noon, or perhaps his last name was Moon, You've, we see it both ways, Israel Swan, and Frank Miller. Chief Urey gave them supplies and advised them to stay close to the river, but it's clear from what happened that spring that things soon went awry. April sixteenth, eighteen 1874, it was only one disheveled prospector who stumbled into Los Pinos Indian Agency near Gunnison, Colorado, and that was, of course, Alfred Packer.
2: Our old friend. So the first thing that Packer asked for when he stumbled in from the wilderness was a drink, specifically a drink of whiskey. And of course, people wanted to know what had happened, what his story was. He told them that he had set out from Chief Urey's winter camp with the five other men, but the other men had soon abandoned him when he wasn't able to keep up due to snow blindness. And he said that he spent the rest of the winter after that trapped in the mountains, living off the land. But many people, and especially those other members of the Utah Party, the ones who'd opted to wait out the winter with the chief, who finally did make their way to the agency, those guys especially were immediately suspicious of this story. And there were a few reasons for that. One He just seemed too well-fed for somebody who had been existing off the land, off of boiled buds and pine gum all winter. And according to Mayo, Chief E. Ray astutely observed this, that he seemed a little too hefty and said, you too damn fat. Another thing that seemed really off, Packer suddenly had all this cash on him. So not only was he packing a few extra pounds, he had all this money, even though he'd been pretty much broke before.
1: Too... Really strange points. So, of course, people are asking more and more questions about this, and so feeling under pressure, Packer offers up a very different version of events. This one includes a kind of confession. According to DiStefano's article, Packer said that just 10 days after the six men left the chief's camp, quote, one after another, the men, quote, had been killed by the remainder to be used as food by the rest. After the men were picked off one by one, eventually, of course, there were only two of them left. Packer said he shot his last remaining companion in self-defense.
2: So, uh, a disturbing story, but one that sort of spreads the guilt around, at least.
1: Yeah, he—he's not seen as a murderer, not a murderer in cold blood, anyway. They were all he was in, was in the cannibalism himself. together. Mm-hmm. It seemed.
2: Later that summer, though, a search party was set out to uh, look for the bodies of Packer's former companions. Packer led this search party, interestingly enough. I guess they needed him to to try to show where he went, but they couldn't find anything. Still, though, even without any physical evidence, Packer was arrested under the suspicion of murder anyway, and the authorities just really had a feeling about this guy. They They had a suspicion that something was up, and Confirmation of those feelings, or at least what seemed to be confirmation, came in August of 1874 when an artist for Harper's Magazine named John A. Randolph discovered the bodies of the missing prospectors near Lake City,
1: Colorado. An article by Andrew Curry in archaeology includes just a little snippet from the beginning of the Harper's account of the find, which read, quote, They were lying in a gloomy, secluded spot, densely shaded by tall trees at the foot of a steep hill near the bank of the Gunnison River. Marks of violence on each body indicated that a most terrible crime had been committed there. The bodies lay within a few feet of each other, in their blankets and clothes. There had been no attempt to conceal the remains. Curry's article also mentions that the Harper's account came... Quote, complete with lurid illustrations of the badly composed bodies. Mm, Lovely. Yeah, pretty graphic. According to Mayo's account, all the bodies were missing most or at least some of their flesh.
2: DiStefano says that an inquest conducted after the bodies were found determined that it looked like the men had been brutally murdered in their sleep. And as a result of this fine, Packer was formally charged with the murder of all five of his former companions. So facing this hefty charge, Packer somehow managed to escape from jail and was on the lam for nine years after that. He was finally discovered by a merchant named Frenchy Carbazon in a saloon in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And picked up March 11th, 1883. From there, he was sent back to Colorado to stand trial, but he had a little bit more to say before that trial.
1: Yeah. March 16th, 1883, he offered up his second confession. And this one was the one that he would more or less stick to throughout his life. Though in later confessions, some of the details did change, but they were more ancillary details. I mean, this is, I guess, sort of, uh, not to make a bad pun, but the meat of the argument <laughs> stays the same <laughs> for from it. here to on out. Them. Okay. So basically, his second story went like this. He said that, He and his party got lost in the mountains and had to resort to boiling rosebuds and pine gum, as you referred to before, after their food ran out. After wandering around on ridgelines for a while, the prospectors made camp on the banks of the Gunnison River. Packer said he took his gun and he went off by himself to see if he could find a way out. But when he returned, he found four of his companions lying there around a fire, and they'd all taken a hatchet to the head. The one remaining, who was Bell, was by the fire roasting a piece of meat, which was supposedly the guys. yes, flesh from one of the men. Upon spotting him, Packer said Bell immediately came after him with a hatchet, and Packer shot him in self-defense and then hit him over the head with his own hatchet. He'd then eaten the flesh of the men to survive the harsh winter. So he admitted to cannibalism. It was just and the a killing bell And to Killing Bell in self-defense. But he wanted it to be, I mean, murder was the thing that people were really up in arms about here. Murdering five men. It's suggested when you read these accounts that people would have pretty much understood the cannibalism. You know, you, ha- you got to do what you got to do to survive when you're out there and in these harsh conditions. But it was the fact that... Packer was also suspected of murdering these guys that and murdering really... for the
2: for their money as well. It seemed yes. So the jury apparently didn't buy this new confession though because Packer was found guilty and was sentenced to hang. When the judge, who was Judge Melville B. Gary, handed down his sentence on April thirteenth, eighteen eighty-three, legend has it that he said something to the effect of quote. There were seven Democrats in all of Hinsdale County, and you ate five of them. I sentence you to be hung by the neck until you are dead, 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 as a warning against further reducing the Democratic population of this county.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this exact wording about the Democrats doesn't seem to be in the version of sentencing that's in the Colorado State Archives, though the dead, dead, dead part is. But according to Curry's article during the New Deal, Colorado Republicans did form these Alfred Packard clubs and members of these clubs swore to quote eliminate at least five Democrats.
2: Oh, I hope they didn't have like luncheon parties for their, <laughs> their Alfred Packard clubs. Ultimately, though, Packer was not hanged due to a technicality. Essentially, the territorial murder laws had changed, and the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that prosecutions of murders before May 28, 1881, were invalid. Packer's case was retried. He did get 40 years in prison. He only ended up serving 18 of those. He was finally paroled in 1901. He died six years later. And according to the Colorado State Archives, the cause of death, which was on April 23rd, 1907, was listed as, quote, senility, trouble, and worry on his death
1: certificate. So a court decided Packer was guilty of murder. And of course, many people still assume that he was. After all, it does make for a good grisly legend. But throughout the years, what really happened on that mountain has really remained a mystery, and many have argued that Packer was convicted on pretty flimsy evidence. George Washington University law professor James Starrs, who he's been responsible for the exhumation of many controversial historical figures, including Lizzie Borden's parents and Jesse James, he was curious enough about this mystery that he organized a team to exhume and examine the remains of Packer's prospecting party in 1989. And they found a lot of things there. They found, uh, first of all, plenty of evidence of trauma on the bones, which suggested that almost all of the flesh had been removed. Also, a lot of the cut marks were on the victim's back, suggesting that the person removing the flesh didn't want to look at the victim's faces, which is just kind of an interesting look into the mind. A of
2: psychological mm-hmm. angle to cannibalism.
1: Yes, According to Curry's article, stars concluded that Packer was the killer because a war wound that was found on Bell's remains would have supposedly made it too difficult for him to inflict the wounds that they found on the other men. But not everyone agrees with Starr's findings.
2: No, the Museum of Western Colorado curator and historian David Bailey is one of those people who's led the charge to prove Packer's innocence. So Bailey started digging into Packer's story when he was working to tie a thirty-eight caliber Colt pistol from the museum's collection to the site where the bodies were found. He was working in the late 90s, the, the early aughts, so he couldn't exhume the bodies, you know, which had just been exhumed. Exhumed in 1989 because they were sealed off over after the last exhumation to protect them from relic hunters. He did, however, have access to some soil samples that were left over from the previous excavation. And by having those tested, Bailey was able to prove the pistol was at the site because lead found in the soil was an exact match for the bullets remaining in the gun. So it's starting to sound kind of like. Packer's story of having to shoot Bell lined up a little bit. Also, the gun still had three bullets in it. There were two empty chambers, which matched up with uh, some of the testimony Packer had given. So, Bell's skeleton had some holes in it, possibly gunshot wounds in the pelvic region. Also, his wallet or his pocketbook. Whatever he was carrying with all that cash that (laughs) Packer was interested in also seemed to have been shot. So this was enough to convince Bailey and many others that Packer was telling the truth, that that second uh, confession was real. He held a mock trial for him in 2002 in which Packer was found innocent.
1: Whether he was guilty or innocent, one thing that's for certain is that Packer became sort of a kitschy kind of folk hero in the 20th century. Since the 1960s, for example, students at the University of Colorado at Boulder have eaten at the Alfred Packer Grill, (laughs) and according to Curry's article, the El Cannibal Burrito is apparently a popular menu item there.
2: Oh, goodness.
1: (laughs) A bust of Packer was also placed in the Colorado State Capitol in 1982.
2: So he made it into the Capitol. I mean, my goodness. He did.
1: That's pretty official. There are also a lot of references to Packer in pop culture. One of the funniest examples is Trey Parker, who co-created the animated TV series South Park, which we all know and love, wrote a play about Packer when he was studying at the University of Colorado called Alfred Packer the Musical. Later, he turned it into a film called Cannibal the Musical. And
2: unsurprisingly, Packer has also just made his way into folk songs, too. There have actually been several songs written about Packer, including 1964's The Ballad of Alfred Packer, which was written by folk singer Phil Ox. The chorus for that song went, They called him a murderer, a cannibal, a thief. It just doesn't pay to eat anything but government-inspected beef. There's even a cookbook out there called
1: Alfred Packer's High-Protein Cookbook. All right. Well <laughs> I feel like you may be picking that up. Oh you Sarah. do? <laughs> you do?
2: <laughs> I, after I go try the El cannibal burrito. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Well you
1: like to cook. I mean I like you cooking. like meat?
2: I like cooking, but I usually try to avoid any associations with cannibalism in most of my <laughs> cooking.
1: As, as a rule of thumb. I as guess that's a, rule a pretty of good thumb. It's a pretty good rule of thumb.
2: Thumbs in your daily cuisine.
1: There you go. Well, I feel much more comfortable sitting in the studio with you right now.
2: I'm I'm glad I was able to reassure you I'm not a cannibal. <laughs>